This episode is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash third space. That's T-H-I-R-D-S-P-A-C-E for a 30-day trial, which gets you one credit, which is basically one book that you can download. If you are an Amazon Prime member, you actually get two credits. So that's two free audiobooks. I am a huge fan of Audible since this uh, coronavirus and pandemic. I've really gotten into uh, listening to three audiobooks and, and at, at a time, just so I have varying thoughts and ideas in my head that isn't the current pandemic. So if you need a distraction and you want to support this podcast, go to audible.com forward slash third space. For ways to support this podcast, please follow us on Instagram at T-H-R-D-S-P-C. Again, that's T-H-R-D-S-P-C. Another way for you to support the work that we're doing is to um, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and rate it and leave a comment. Thank you so much. Welcome back to The Third Space. My name is Faiza Farah and I am your host, I wanted to begin this episode by uh, reminding everyone out there in the United States to go and vote. Um, this is such a crucial time in in our history, and um, you know it's 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 really it's really easy to be disenchanted with the process, the whole political process, and feeling as though there are. Um, candidates that are really specifically uh, speaking to your needs. Yeah, I'm, I'm always really uh, fascinated at how how difficult they make voting in the United States. It's, it's not a national holiday. You don't have that time off of work. It's not on a Sunday. And, and then all of the illegal things that people do to suppress um, uh, votes from people of color, young people, uh, the elderly, and, um, you know, when, when people try this hard to disenfranchise you, um, it should tell us all how powerful our voices are. So I hope, uh, folks, um, have a plan to vote and, you know, um, yeah, I, I hope that things shift, you know, it's, it's, um, for me, voting is like a, an act of, of hope. And 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 hoping that that tomorrow will be better than today. Um, I wanted to bring a guest on this uh, week that has um, that has a you know a political inclination. She's whip smart. Um, she is socially conscious, but um, but she's not a politician. And 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 we 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 talk about social issues, but um, I wanted this to be. A break from all of the 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 election noise that's happening around the clock, and um, and this guest is just so 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 exceptional. Our guest this week is Giselle Ali, and she is a phenomenal phenomenal makeup artist. Um, it doesn't seem like it's enough to 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 encapsulate who she is. She's someone that is so gifted with with um the art of makeup and and she is drop dead gorgeous um 
Giselle is a self-described makeup artist and eco baby uh, based in London, uh, in the UK. She has uh, done makeup um, at the Met Gala for celebrities, for British Vogue. Just go to her Instagram so you can ooh and awe ah at her beauty, her artistry, her skill. I don't think there's anyone on, you know, on Toni Morrison's internet that can top her winged eyeliner game. <laughs> I think mean, she's the best, you know? Um, and to me, she is the future of makeup. I, I, I just foresee so much exceptional things coming from her. And I'm so, so, so grateful that I had uh, a moment in time to, to, to check in with her and, and chat and to talk about some of the things that are important to her and, and hear about her origin story. Um, you can find her on Instagram at Giselle underscore makeup. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast just as much as I enjoyed speaking to the gorgeous Giselle. Um, this is my interview with Giselle Ali. Enjoy. Thank you so much, Giselle Ali, for being a guest on our show. Thanks Welcome. Um, I guess I want to start at the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. I want to know where you were born, where you grew up. Okay, so um, I was born in uh, Barking Hospital in um, East, well, Essex. Um, it's situated in the east of London. Um, and I grew up in the same area like Romford area um which uh but then my upgroup my upbringing was kind of everywhere because although I grew up in Essex I went to a church for like all the hours that God sends in Tottenham <laughs> which is North London <laughs> which is a huge contrast to where I grew up and where a lot of my beauty information came from so um yeah <laughs> What's the vibe in Essex like? The vibe in Essex back then was very white, um, mm. uh, kind of a white working class background, quite racist. Mm. Um, but now it's definitely more multicultural. I mean, my neighbours on one side are Somali, the other side are from Mauritius, the other side are from Pakistan. And that was like, it's it's crazy like how, diverse it's become but that wasn't the case when I was when I was younger but yeah it's like a lot more multicultural now which is great and did your did your parents immigrate from another place or or um born and raised in in England as well yeah my, I'm uh, yeah I'm, I'm second generation British my my parents parents immigrated here from the Caribbean from mm. um, Jamaica and Dominica <clears throat> so um yeah um two generations British don't really feel it though but yeah <laughs> Definitely yeah that's that's so uh that's so interesting uh that you say you don't feel it um because it's mm. you know you it would it would seem that you are entitled to be as british as anyone else um what are what are some of the things that um don't make you feel like that you can really claim being british 
Um, I think the only time I've really felt British is when I'm not in Britain. I think when I'm in the States, when I work in New York, I'm very much British. And then that becomes a privilege almost because it's like, oh, you know, they're going to choose the English girl because, you know, my accent apparently is some kind of currency there, which is was really interesting to kind of, to kind of understand is that when you uh, have an accent, it kind of elevates you to a different kind of black, which is very strange, very strange, because obviously we don't have the same privileges here. Um, no matter, you know, how good your command of the English language is in Britain, you're never really British. If someone might ask you where you're from and you tell them an area in England, you'd make them quite mad because um, they'll be like, no, you know what I mean, <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah, I think the only time I'm not, the only time I get to be British when I'm not in Britain. Yeah, I, I, I find that to be true about most identities. You know, it's like mm -hmm. when you see what you're not, you can kind of see what you are. But it's mm -hmm. it's it's odd how often you hear Black people all over the world say that they don't belong somewhere when they're outside of the continent, you know, where they feel yeah. like a place that, that, you know, they have spent generations somehow isn't isn't um, hospitable to them in any way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm also curious about, about that commodity of being British in the United States. Um, okay. Cause our audience is mostly in the United States and, and we oftentimes project that if someone has a cool British accent that must mean that they're just really intelligent and okay. way more cool. And, you know, um, and, and it's and it's 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 fascinating to hear you pair that together that 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 hierarchy that yeah. might put you in a in a you know at a higher hierarchy in the United States yeah. is not acknowledged at all in 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 the UK. Yeah, it's really strange, especially like when dating. Like, because I remember one of my friends, she's from New York. She's very like matter of fact, and I was telling her like a couple of years ago, I was seeing someone. And she was like, I was like, oh, God, he's treating me so lovely. You know, they're much better here than in the UK. And oh, he's really sweet to me. And, you know, he's opening doors and paying for things. And I, you just don't get that in Britain at all, unless you're, you know, uh, racially ambiguous or white. And um, <laughs> so, so it's just, yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, God, you know, it's so nice that he's treating me so well. And she was like, yeah, that's because you're foreign. <laughs> 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 the ambiguous foreign yeah that's just like, they just they just say it as it is and they were like yeah it's cute that you feel that way but it's because you're foreign <laughs> your cute little accent and it really yeah away because i'm just like okay if i'm the same black as the black woman around the corner from your block like i i don't mm -hmm. you know if you're treating me good just because i'm some kind of exotic to you because i'm not from where you're from then no <laughs> that doesn't make me feel good no um, yeah needless to say I'm not dating him now but, <laughs> but yeah well, it's just this interesting dynamic to be um yeah it's interesting duality it's it's strange also that like there's such an allure of things that are just I guess different uh, from us, you know, I, um, I had the same experience while dating in the United States because my, my ancestry is Ethiopian and I was oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, people would say like, oh, well you, you know, you don't look like the other girls or you don't whatever, you know, and my ancestry isn't 
descendant of enslaved peoples um and not well they were enslaved in ethiopia but not in the in the so-called new world and um and i was always so so offended and so disgusted at how uh, that was meant to be a compliment and how quickly it, it changed my gaze from someone, like you said, that opens doors and pays the bill and makes you feel good. And, and how quickly that there's like such a deep level of disdain, because as you said, if, if you don't see that I'm the exact same person as the girl that's around the way, mm -hmm. then, then, then there's a huge, huge problem. And, um, and the, the longer I spent in, in the U S the longer, you know, that just be begins to kind of, you know, reveal itself more and more. Um, I'm curious, what is dating like in the UK? Oh dear. <laughs> Cause we have this projection that like British guys must be so like charming and gentlemanly and open doors and pay for shit. But yeah, I'm hearing no. <laughs> no. And you know, what's really funny. I think maybe it's a similar thing here because people always tell me when they're from somewhere else that they really love the men here. And I'm just like, Oh, I'm so happy. I mean, I've never met anybody that I really like here in that way. There's always kind of um, some some kind of settling, <laughs> you know, like uh, the quality here is quite bad. But I also think that you have to understand like the the history of black British men and why they kind of uh, choose whiter and lighter. There's a really documentary about it I watched the other day, actually, about just, just how long that kind of connection between black women and white men are, because uh, white women is because... Um, the when the when Caribbeans um, immigrated here in the sixties after the war, um, it was the men who came first because they needed help to fix the roads after the war because England was bombed quite badly. Um, so I think that the black men and white women met first, you know, and then after they asked for black women to come, which was the nurses, which made up the majority of the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK. So the black women came after, by which time the you know the black men and the white women had time to parlay. <laughs> so right. and it was obviously, like, obviously these were Caribbeans that were coming from colonial rule in the Caribbean. So they kind of already had this conditioning that white was better or, you know, the, right. the British colony in the Caribbean. So it was very much your command of the British language. You know, if you were lighter skinned, you had somebody in your family that was um, white or higher esteemed or, you know, so having the the white woman was definitely a prize. So there's a huge, it, there's more of a, um, there's more of a, um, white women have such a currency here and lightest women have such a currency here that um, I don't see in the same way in the States. I think that the States is definitely more segregated. You feel the effects of the Jim Crow more. Mm -hmm. um, people stay in their corners, especially in somewhere like New York, which I travel to quite a bit and I've worked to quite a bit. You know, you have the Dominicans, you have mm. the Puerto Ricans, you have the Haitian corner, you have the, you know, you, there's so many different corners of different kinds of, of, of black and different people and everybody's kind of in their own corners. Whereas in the UK, the great thing about the UK, which I think people love is that everyone's kind of amalgamated together. Mm. But you know, within that, if it's important to you as a black woman to have a black partner, it's very difficult to find someone who holds that same value. Um, and, and, and the black men here are not really prepared to unpack why they desire white or a lighter. It's always kind of, you know, um, 
you know, a trauma response uh, uh, masked in, oh, it's my preference. But, you know, they don't really right. want to unpack what, you know, because I had to unpack, I, I was dating white men for <clears throat> the first couple of years of my dating life. And that was a direct trauma response to black men just not looking at me at all. In a predominantly mm. white area that were here, we're not, I was invisible. So I kind of just went to where the love was. And then when I unpacked that and I realized that, oh, I'm not, it's not really what I'm into. I'm just doing it because that's what the love is. Mm. Then I had to kind of unpack that and be like, okay, why? <laughs> and also I had quite traumatic, um, you know, experiences dating white men. Not everybody has that. And I live and let live for sure. Some people find happiness there. But for me, I found a lot of problems, you know, there. So I unpacked it and I, and I don't date outside of my race anymore but um I also don't date in the UK either I date Mm. when I travel I date when I travel um and because my goal is to not live here forever it's not really a huge deal um because I'd like to move from the UK so I just date when I travel basically mainly in North Africa god but that must be so uh difficult just so difficult because there's just so many so many layers, you know, um, I think, I think there are similar dynamics that, that happen in the United States as well. And when you are interfacing with folks, interacting with folks that don't want to unpack or do the work Mm -hmm. to analyze their desires, because, because they're not oftentimes just something that come from them there. It's like a programming, what, what we find beautiful, the size, the color, the textures, the shapes, all of those things have been kind of predestined and um, unless you unpack it, then you're just kind of recycling the trauma as you, as you said. Um, And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious because, um, uh, yeah, there's just, yeah, I I find that there's so many parallels in terms of dating in the United States when you're a black woman. Mm -hmm. Um, But do you find that because this is what I found in the United States, that black women uh, are really, really kind of fiercely loyal at times, not all black women, of course, at like uh, making sure that they date black men and Mm -hmm. sometimes closing off the possibility of dating anyone else. Um, But that kind of fidelity or loyalty sometimes isn't, um, isn't uh, reversed. You know, I I know that, I know, that that might just be an American thing, but I don't know. Is this that? Do you see that happening in in the UK at all? Yeah, I think it's the same thing here. I think um, uh, I, I, I think I've read somewhere that culture preservation is always kind of put in the hands of the woman, and it's actually quite true because the woman does pass on the culture in most cases. Because mm. in those um, younger informal years, maybe the child spends a lot of their time with the, with the mother, and maybe that's why. But um, I think culture preservation is kind of more important to black women than it is to black men. I think that obviously if you think about it in a kind of like way of capitalism and getting on in the world, I think that, you know, the more you kind of assimilate to white culture or whiteness, you're usually rewarded with money and things and, you know, opportunities and things that are not really afforded to you if you kind of um, not assimilate. So I think that, you know, I think that a lot of maybe it's it's more tied up in that, just the desire to kind of 
have something and do better and get on, you know, mm. which is why they have that culture of when, you know, a lot of black men get on, they get with, with someone whiter or lighter. Um, yeah, so much of it is is like what they associate with a yeah. kind of status, you know, which is so ridiculous. Um, I'm to say that people don't find love in you know true genuine love in lighter women. I don't want to make it seem like oh, I can be of course, you know, because I think people always jump on. I mean, people will jump on black men regardless, won't they? Whatever we, <laughs> whatever disclaimers we make, but I just think that it's interesting that they don't want to unpack that. Yeah, I I found that yeah there are lots of men that that hesitate you know kind of looking inwards and and unpacking those things. I mean, the the truth of the matter is is like you either have like a kind of like hotep overly conscious too woke that he needs a nap kind of guy that like uh, <laughs> will tr- try to. Um, you know, tr- try to overemphasize and perform something, you know, yeah. uh, as if, as if there's like a charity, uh, or, or, or a control that, you know, uh, is tethered to, you know, him seeing you and caring for you. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you have, you know, a situation where someone really doesn't want to examine some of their desires. Um, and then of course there are lots of people that are out there that are healthy and, 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 and aware of their desires and are making, trying their best to make conscious decisions, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm dying to talk about your career. Uh, Cause I feel <laughs> like, um, you're the type of person I, I follow you online and, and, and see some of your threads or some of the times where you go on IG live and for anyone listening, please follow her on Instagram. I will, uh, tag her, um, IG handle on all of our posts and, and at, at the end of the podcast, but you oftentimes as you are applying, um, makeup talking about these really big overarching, uh, <laughs> issues around like colorism Mm -hmm. uh like like uh, colonialism um uh the industry and how exploitative and extractive it is to artists um i mean just on and on and on um but i as as we talk about those things i really want to kind of jump into talking about your career because there's something really kind of awe-inspiring about your work and your artistry that always takes my breath away thank you I appreciate that yeah it's funny (laughs) I'm glad that you think that it has some kind of substance I mean it's usually just me rambling about things that are that cause me anxiety whether that be eco-anxiety or just capitalism in general or just like you know how big uh elephant this thing is and me trying to like I think my friend said it very well when we had our eco talk. She was like, you're trying to eat the whole elephant. Like you have to, mm. you have to break this down into pieces because you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> so I think that's where all the ramblings kind of come from. Um, but yeah, it's like when I get into makeup, it is kind of like meditative and I kind of use it as my kind of escapism time, which I think a lot of people need to do more and not just to kind of, be more attractive to others um, or yourself. I think that sometimes it's just cool just to play with colour and shape and form. Mm. Um, I'm saying that I haven't actually done that type of makeup for a little while. I need to get more into that. But um, but yeah, I'm glad you find a value in my in my um, nervous ramblings. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, also, I don't think that there's anyone in the game that does a wing liner better than you. So um, <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about um, uh, when did you discover you were an artist? What was like kind of the early iteration of your artistry? Um, I think maybe at school. But funnily enough, at school, I wasn't really ever that great at art. Um, I was good or, sorry, my art teacher would say that I had moments of greatness, but I never really committed to it. So I just had these moments of like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. But I didn't put the same in, I didn't put the same thing into, you know, my practice every time that I worked. Hmm. Because that's kind of echoed through my career. (laughs) So I've kind of had (laughs) moments of greatness and then I haven't really uh, you know, being in my little artist bubble and just being sensitive about my shit, as Erica would say, I kind of haven't really been able to like and, capitalize, maybe uh, <laughs> capitalize properly um, from it. But I think that. Um, I think why did you think that was at an early age? Um, well, now I think about it, there was a lot going on in my home life, and I think that mm. I think that. I can't really, I can't really separate all of the parts of me. You know, like how some people can go into work and they can turn on their laptop and they can kind of get lost in that. I have a very bad attention span and I can only really focus on one thing at a time for maybe about 15 minutes max. And then I'm kind of off doing something else. And I think that kind of lack of practice in my lack of discipline in my artistry has kind of been my downfall. Um, but at the same time, I think because I'm always everywhere and nowhere, I never really have to look to anywhere for much inspiration because I'm always kind of thinking things, you know, Mm -hmm. my mind's kind of always ticking over. Um, but yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) well, it makes sense because, um, I, I find that people that hold um, you know, many things in their hands in terms of their capacity. It's it's oftentimes really hard to just kind of think about that one thing and and see it all the way through because as you're kind of beginning something, another kind of brilliant thing comes up. You know, so um, and and so then where how did that translate to um, to makeup and 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 a a love I'm assuming of, of makeup. Um, I like to think that my love for um, all things making face is just inherently African. And I just feel like it's just part of my um, my ancestry. I think, you know, black people, African people have been making face for, God, my goodness, as, you know, as far back as you can probably imagine. I think we like decorating ourselves and I think that my mum's a great example of that because you would never know what was in her bank account, you know, by what by looking at her. She always had lipstick and a scent and a fur coat or earrings or, you know, her hair done and was just really shiny, you know, always a, <laughs> always a shiny penny no matter what she was going through. And I just really admired that because I feel, cause obviously cause I, I know her and I live with her. I know when we had to have you know, cereal for dinner or something like that. So right. I knew the reality of, of what 
we were going through, but you know, she never showed that. And I always admired her shininess. Um, and I, and I, yeah. And I like to think that my love for, uh, for makeup and artistry just is part of my heritage. Um, Caribbean women are very flashy, you know, Jamaican women are always making some kind of statement, you know, they're artisans when it comes to weave, um, and things like that. And mm-hmm. yeah, I just think that the colours and the flamboyance of everything is just, yeah, just linked into my heritage. I think everything that I like is just kind of because I'm a Caribbean woman, <laughs> you know. And were you were you uh, kind of painting your own face at an early age and kind of uh, exploring and, and trying to figure out techniques or did you find another path? Yeah, I think that, gosh, growing up, I really didn't like my own face. And I I think that painting it kind of distracted me from the fact that I really didn't like my features. I didn't like my nose. Mm. And I didn't like, I thought my lips were too big and I didn't like the gap in my teeth in the middle. And I thought my eyes were really tiny. And it's really funny that all of the things that I hate about my face now is I really grown to love is the more I've kind of understood that no, because my dad always explained to me, because my dad looks very much like a Nigerian man. He looks like an Ibo, which people always tell me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's Dominican. <clears throat> and um, he's always kind of, you know, told me that we look this way because we're descendants of Africans and you have a beautiful African nose. And, you know, but at the time it was just like, I just want to look like Aaliyah. I want to look like Aaliyah. <laughs> Why don't I look like this <laughs> other black girl, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that, makeup was my escapism from you know my my the reality of the features I'd been given and then kind of like helped me break into loving them eventually um which I do now which is god I never thought that day would come but I really do love my face now and what was that process like how did you go from really not liking you know your your features to to really like what was that transform? What was that transformation? That process to really kind of loving. I think when I I think when I start to do makeup for other people, and you know I'd work with these gorgeous, you know, six foot tall, skinny models with perfect features, long shiny hair, and I would do their makeup, and they would look in the mirror and be like, "Oh my god, I look so fat!" Or, "Oh my god, my nose looks huge!" Or, "Oh my god," mm-hmm. you know, and they were always able to find something. I just thought, wow, if this, you know, six foot Amazonian woman or, you know, who's closest to the standard of beauty there is, thinks she's ugly, then actually nobody's bloody happy. And actually maybe I like what I have because the most beautiful people that I would meet in these shoots and stuff were just chronically miserable because there was always someone, Mm. you know, pretty around the corner who was going to take their spot and you know when you're model you're only hot for a minute and then somebody else who has your look and is younger takes over you know so it's just a quite a a brutal industry and I just remember kind of looking at it from the outside looking in being like god I'm so happy my makeup artist and I'm not a model because that's really that's really tough and then I just think now that there's just more people who look like me center stage so I think it's, this is the easiest time to love myself as a you know, as a fat femme woman, because there's just, there's just so many women who look like me in the, in the, you know, in the spotlight. Um, right. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a, yeah, it was a process, but I think definitely seeing that models were unhappy too made me realize that, okay, 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah. And then also I understand it as a capitalist construct that it's very important that we hate ourselves because otherwise mm. if we loved ourselves and we was content, how could you convince us to buy anything? We have to stay right. in a perpetual state of, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with our bodies. Well, and uh, just to hear you frame it that way makes me think about um, like why oftentimes like you, you you buy something and then why you still feel the same way. And it was it's supposed to be some kind of real retail therapy, but that, yeah. that if you if you save and you try to kind of keep some of that for yourself, that that maybe there's another way that, that it isn't something that you can kind of buy your way out of. Um, there's like a deeper healing that has to happen. Um, and when did you see, when did you see this as a, as a career path for yourself? How, how, when did you go from, I I, I love makeup, don't like my features. No, wait, I love my features. And, and this is a a viable path for me and and I'm actually pretty good at it. Um, (laughs) this is a really difficult question because I think a lot of people who are budding makeup artists, they kind of see me as like, some kind of goal or you know I'm I'm really thriving to them you know sometimes I don't want to break their I don't want to burst their bubble but you know being an artist is really hard yeah it's really hard and it's very much like oh yay I'm rich oh I have no money yay I'm rich oh I have no money um the uncertainty of it all was was very difficult for me to break out because I always worked in an office I was since I was 17 mom doesn't play games she marched me up to an agency so I had an office job by the age of 17 wow and um, I was working a nine to five and I worked a nine to five up until 26, 27. Mm. So I was working for a good 10 years uh, in the office doing nine to fiving. And I think that I just, I just hated it. I didn't understand how my mum had done it for 27 years. And, you know, I just thought this is the most miserable thing I've ever done in my life. Like waking up in the morning, same time, just Groundhog Day, you know, mm. repeating the same day as yesterday. And, you know, getting on the train with all the other people, you know, stuffed in like sardines and London transport system is really bad for that. It's even more packed than New York Um, because our trail, our railways are really old. Sorry, that's neither here nor there. But (laughs) because I I hated the nine to fiving and I used to love because at one point I was working seven days a week. So I used to work at Mac. And I used to work uh, for Mac on the weekends and on Mondays and Fridays, but I would still go to my nine to five. I would wake up really early on a Monday to get to work at 8 a.m. so that I could leave at four, put my makeup on on the train. And then it was about half an hour to Stratford and I have to put lashes on and everything by the time that I'd got to the other side. And then I would work at Mac from five till nine. And then I'll do the same thing again on the Friday, eight till eight till four and then five till nine. And then I'll get up on the Saturday and Sunday and work a full day at Mac on the Saturday and Sunday. Did that for a couple of months, actually burnt myself out. Um, But I just, I could do it because I really looked forward to being around makeup and being around people and just the contrast of the office versus a more kind of retail setting, which was just Mm. more about, actual conversations with people and meeting people and you know assessing what their beauty hang-ups were and just knowing that I could find the right product that would really make them happy or you know get rid of their circles or whatever it is they're going through and you know you really you really have conversations with women and I think that you um 
when you're a makeup artist, you're actually like a lot of things, you know, you're a therapist, you become all different, you know, you, it's just, yeah, I really love people. And I think that it was the interaction that I thought, hold on, I think I could do this makeup thing, um, full time. And, um, I just, uh, yeah. So I contacted a lot of photographers and stuff and, um, they would kind of like have me in their studios and do like test shoots and stuff like that. So everyone works for free and then you get the pictures back. Um, I think we used to call it TFP back then, which is time for print, which no one prints anymore, but yeah. So, um, (laughs) I used to do that and then I just kind of built from there and I just, it just became what I really loved and I just couldn't see myself doing anything else. Was social media kind of helpful in in getting you out there and and removing any kind of middle person so you could kind of interface with people that could potentially hire you? Was that something that was a bit of a launch pad for you, kind of developing a YouTube and Instagram and and kind of interacting with people directly? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, at the time we were using Facebook, I mean, Instagram wasn't there yet. And um, Facebook was a great tool because I could just kind of, people were tagged in their photos and kind of just message people and bother people. And yeah, it was really great. Um, I think that what it's become now is crazy because everybody is so accessible. Mm. So you could message anybody and, you know, or, or anybody can see you. And I think the crazy thing is that what you never realize is exactly who's watching you. Like, because I went through my follow list the other day and I couldn't believe like the kind of people that I saw, I was like, Oh my God, that person knows I exist. Oh, that's strange. Or sometimes, you know, you see your likes or something on a post and you're like, oh my God, I never realized this person is following me. It's quite interesting. But yeah, mm. he's watching you. So I think it's just, and I think I should be a little bit more intentional when I post actually thinking that because yeah, you never know who is paying attention to what you're doing. So your Instagram has definitely become the new CV for sure. Right. And when did you transition from that office job and working at Mac to being able to kind of work for yourself? I think I've been freelance for three and a half years, which has surprised quite a lot of people because I think they know me to be doing makeup for a long time, but I was doing an office job for a long time as well. It took me a long time to actually gain a living from this. So mm. yeah, I've only been freelance for the past three and a half years. And at first, were you kind of riddled with anxiety? You know, I, I come Absolutely. from a yeah. very working class family as well. And and the idea at first of like walking away from a job to pursue whatever it is that you love just seems so ludicrous because you're like, well, wait, how, will I make rent in three months? You know, like, yeah. Um, yeah. And can I really take that chance? Yeah, I mean, when I when I lived alone, I mean, I'm back at home now, which I'm grateful for. Um, yeah, my sister's gone back to uni, and it's just yeah, I just thought, you know what, let me not kill myself. Um, yeah, when I lived alone, sure, for sure, it was a lot of pressure, and I kind of thought like, oh god, like, will I always be able to afford this? And it is pressure, but I think that when you have to make rent, you will do it. And I think mm. that almost isn't an, an element of laid backness since I've been at home. I won't lie because I mean, you know, obviously I, I do have to, I don't have rich parents. I do have to help out a lot financially, but I think that obviously it's so much less pressure than if you were to live by yourself or, you know, which is insane expensive in London as a lot of people will know. But um, yeah, I think that when you have to make rent, you will. And obviously I had to do a lot of other things, you know, sometimes it was, um, 
doing cash and hand jobs or I had to like, uh, I had to diversify my skills. So I'm also a lash tech. I know how to do lashes, mm. lashes and I know how to do waxing as well. So those things kind of like kept me through. Um, I don't know those things anymore, but I know that if, if times get hard, there are other things that I know how to do. Um, you know, so it's always good to like acquire other skills. But yeah, I think that when I left my office job, I kind of wrote my parents because I knew I wasn't going to, I knew I wasn't going to go back. I just knew that, you know, I was just going to have to hustle it out. And I, I said, okay, do you know what? I think I was leaving uni at the same time as well. And I just kind of written them, you know, I wrote them a long list of the things I was going to achieve. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my driving license. I'm going to get a car. I'm going to do these things. And, you know, I was pretty diligent and I did everything that I said I was going to do on the list. And I think because my parents could see that I was kind of like, you know, ticking things off that they weren't as worried. But I think my mom's a lot laid more laid back, but Dominicans are very much like, you know, maybe Asians or Africans in that sense. It's very much, if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, then what are you doing? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but Jamaicans and uh, well, my, my Jamaican mother is a little bit more laid back than that. She just wants her children happy. Mm. I think that, you know, it was a little, yeah, convincing my dad was a little bit difficult, but he's also very an artistic soul. So I think mm. he kind of understood that I was very much him and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. So uh, he was very understanding very understanding of that i've i've often heard you uh talk about some of the pitfalls around the business of of beauty yeah. and being an independent um uh artist and and um and all of the kind of smoke and mirrors that oftentimes um, get presented to you as real options. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Some of the experiences that you've had um, that have led you to have a different awareness for for the business. And, and I ask you this because I, I know that there will be uh, folks that, like you said, kind of see you as as where they want to be. And, um, and maybe this could be, you know, just uh, some sage advice that they can get maybe near the beginning of their career. Oh, how much time have we got? <laughs> um, I think this is kind of why I try to keep in touch with a lot of the young black makeup artists in London that are coming up because I think that, and I always kind of like open my space to be like, do you know, if you need to ask me any questions, please do. Let's talk to each other. So mainly we don't end up undercutting each other. And um, just, I think the the main thing that I think in the industry is very, very um, not clear is that when you don't go through, when you don't get into makeup artistry through um, a through, through an education route. So basically, I didn't, I never studied makeup. I just kind of fell into it. When you study makeup, you have a little bit more of a understanding of industry. But when you, because usually you're being taught by another makeup artist that you can ask questions. Um, right. So when you come through it in the way that I did, which is just kind of feeling my way through, you have to kind of make a lot of mistakes and take a lot of L's. And um, the biggest L's that I've taken in my career is not understanding how to charge when it comes to marketing and advertising. And just how things work. So I just want to say, like, since we're, um, since I have this platform now, that basically in advertising, there is a huge pie. And the bigger the pie, the bigger your slice is. 
So just because you're doing one or two days worth of a shoot for a campaign doesn't mean that you shouldn't be paid very healthily for it. Um, you don't charge it as you normally would like for a shoot for, I don't know, a video shoot or something like that because it's marketing and companies have huge budgets for marketing. So for example, you could be doing um, something for a car advert for Nissan, for example, a company that big is going to have so much budget. They'll have something like 2K for the food budget alone, you know, for that day. Mm. You have to, it's your kind of job to figure, which is very difficult when you don't have an agency. And unfortunately, agencies in the UK that hire makeup artists and, uh, and hairstylists don't really have black people on their books. And I know this as someone that's done Met Gala and done Celebrity and done all of these things and still won't get booked by an agency in London, even with all of my experience. Because they don't, yeah, because they don't, but if I was in New York, I'd be booked. I'd I'd have an agency, absolutely. But they just don't, they're just, that's just how they're set up here. They're quite, well, racist, it's essentially. Um, Because they don't really have many uh black people on their books these are things that you have to learn without having an agency so you know you could end up doing a shoot and not realizing that there's this huge kind of you know um pot and you know you could charge your usual day rate and then you find out that the advertisement's gone everywhere tvc all over the london underground on the sides of buses, in magazines, online, on Instagram stories, that you could find your work everywhere. And then and that's happened to me before. That I've kind of not understood the 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 gravity of how far of of how much money this company had. And you know, if you give them a small amount, I mean it's the producer's job. The producer is always your biggest uh, enemy when it comes to budgeting because it's the producers the producer gets the pot of money and they have to decide who gets what, right? And if they can create the best produce, the best product, you know, the best outcome for the littlest money, um, then they look great to their client. So it's their job actually to not pay you (laughs) what you're due. And if you don't know how much you're due, it's perfect for them. If you say to them, oh yeah, no, just give me, like I charge you know, 800 day rate, they'd be all lovely, brilliant. And they're not going to say anything like, oh, actually we had, you know, 3K budget for this, actually. They're not going to tell you. It's their job job to keep that pot of money. And there was another guy who, without giving any names, he worked for another production company and he was famous for doing this. So he would hire a lot of younger, inexperienced people to do these big projects for these music videos. And he would... Um, he wouldn't put the money on the table. So he wouldn't do a spreadsheet or anything like that. He would just kind of, uh, you know, give these younger people, you know, chicken chains for the work that they were doing and wow. then pocket the rest oh so, and lie to the client about how much everything costed. So, and only when somebody else came in above him, did she kind of realize like, oh, hold on a minute, where's the money? Because he would pocket he would pocket the rest. So oh there's, a, there's a lot of that happening in the industry. And I think that young people, young, un, un, uh, unexperienced makeup artists, um, like my DMs are open. If you have questions about budgeting and how much you're, you're due, then 
please, 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 please contact me because this person I'm talking about, he's still working. It's not as if he's been shut down, you know, he still does this job. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of like a lack of accountability in this industry and a lot of, um, yeah, I mean, had he been a woman, he'd probably been cancelled ages ago and none would work with him. But I think that, yeah, he's not. So (laughs) this is just how this thing goes. And did you did you gather these lessons because you were burned so many times? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Which is why I feel like there shouldn't be a secondary burn. Like I shouldn't, I should be getting burned so the so the, so the other makeup artists don't have to get burned. But like, you know, because people don't talk to people. This is it's just like you know, right. oh, this person's a competition. We mustn't talk. Like no, we must. We have to talk actually <laughs> because it's you know such a you know a small kind of pot of industry, and it's just like you know we need each other. So yeah, <laughs> I'm prepared to uh, I, what's happening. I like the idea of like talking about money and kind of demon yeah. demystifying the, 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 the numbers. We oftentimes don't do that. And when we do, when you say like, wait, how much were you paid? Well, wait, how much were you paid? And you start having those conversations, you quickly see the, the inequality. Um, yeah. And, and kind of, taking taking the the awkwardness out of that conversation i think is so 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 important especially mm-hmm. with a lot of these brands that bank on the fact that folks aren't going to be talking to each other about money you know yeah. and that's the thing i think and also you notice is when i email these companies and they say okay we've got this project da, 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 da. i'm like okay well what's the usage what's the rotation uh, is it tvc is it cuz i use all of these kind of you know, jargon they don't mm. know these things. And I know about marketing. Now I've had, mm. to, I've had to learn about marketing. So you come back with all these questions and sometimes they don't even email you back because they're like, oh shit, she knows her stuff. <laughs> don't, even, don't even, yeah, she knows her stuff. Don't even go there. Then they'll find someone that is naive. That doesn't know. No, you know. <sighs> so, um, yeah, <laughs> we live and we learn. <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious about how, the Black Lives Matter movement that is obviously such a global movement has had an impact on on the UK in terms of framing the conversations around race and racism and and kind of racial inequalities. Um, what is your perspective on on the Black Lives Matter movement in in the UK? Is it there? Is it making an impact? Is it shifting the way that that folks talk about race um hmm. the thing is is that i me- I, I mainly work with black people mm. uh, like black artists and stuff like that so i don't really know i think it would probably be better to ask somebody who is for example in an office environment like my friend she works in she works in a law firm and you know she kind of told me that she emailed her boss to, to ask them what they were doing for the Black Lives Matter or what, you know, what kind of things they're putting in place. And they just said nothing, basically. And <laughs> I think that, yeah, it was very surprising to see, not surprising, but I was quite proud to see like people marching in London and stuff like that in the middle of a pandemic as well, because I think that British culture is very difficult to describe it. If you, if you, so Americans, I, I feel like they have more of an overt racism which actually, even though it's scary, I kind of, it's going to sound really weird, but I kind of 
not prefer it, but I respect it more because I think that you kind of, you see it coming, you know, Mm. British people are so covertly racist and very much like you, you won't really, it's always like a kind of feeling or a kind of like a, you know, you won't get the job. They won't quite tell you why, but you kind of just know why. Um, Mm. It's always kind of this underlining, okay, you know, I, I don't know. It's tricky to describe, but. No, I know exactly. Yeah, like, I know exactly it, what you mean. British racism is very complex. I mean, oh God, the British kind of started all of this, you know, they're very sneaky. Um, <laughs> I can't just like break down British psychology in a day, but I think, yeah, I think, I think, has it helped? Um, I think that people, I th- okay, it, in a way it's helped because I think that, you know, when it kind of kicked off, I think that brands were in this kind of like desperate scramble to appear inclusive. Right. Um, and I think that I got a lot of people contacting me, asking me for things. But what was interesting is that they were contacting me for opportunities, but they weren't talking about any money. And I thought to myself, what do you think this thing is? Mm. We are asking for opportunities, you know, at the same level to that of our whiter and lighter counterparts. And you're still reaching out and you're offering zero money or very little money. And I was so close to putting a couple of brands on blast, but I just thought, you know what, let me not do that because, you know, it's very difficult. It's like you can't really set the hand that feeds you. Mm. I think I mentioned a couple of brands and they're not talking to me now, which I don't really care because a few of them are black owned and are like, do have a lot of money and they're still not playing their influences. So Mm. I'm just like, it was it was very performative it was it was performative help right it was performative help and I think it was quick you know we need black people on our brands because they're otherwise we might get cancelled right yeah it was very reactionary it wasn't like okay let's create lasting change it's just like you know there are a couple of brands that did things pretty well but I think yeah I think the brands that cared kind of always did I think or always kind of had you know black women not as an afterthought you know mm. um, yeah I, I don't know open-ended question I, I don't know yeah yeah I mean I find the there is a similar kind of racism in the United States as well oftentimes when people think about New York or California or I mean anywhere in the coasts or in the north um that they're that that the racism isn't over you know they don't expect that californians are going to be really racist but it is really racist and hostile place and and part of it that's just absolutely maddening is that you are in your mind like just totally occupied with with the question like wait was that Mm-hmm. did that really just happen am I reading that right am I coding it right you know and it's this kind of leaves you with this kind of paranoia and after you spent you know a lifetime of was that what I thought you know is this what I think it is um you realize that yeah that there are so many different faces of racism and some more subtle and of course the ones that are subtle are so heartbreaking because mm-hmm. how do you you know how do you prove it how how do you how do you flag something and yep. and, and say it's inappropriate when it's yep. when it can be so subtle and 
uh, and it's and it's heartbreaking because it's equally as demoralizing and um, and and so toxic, you know, as, as yeah. something that and, and occupies so much of your capacity and your brain power, you know, mm-hmm. um, just so exhausting. Um, one thing that I found to be really positive um, as a black person in this moment is feeling as though although social media can be really uh, like a, a toxic play, place when you are a dark-skinned Black woman, mm-hmm. um, it, that's not a size zero, um, it, it, it has plugged me into a kind of global unified Blackness that highlights the oh. diversity of Blackness, but I feel like I'm connected to something. Do you feel that way too? Absolutely. I feel like, yeah, in this time of information, I think we've been able to see each other in a way that we've never seen each other before. Um, And I think that's really important. And I think that, God, if there's one thing that I hope more is, is that, you know, the diaspora just become more informed about how colonial rule and white supremacy affects black people globally. Because I think there's not enough interest in what it's like being black somewhere else, you know? people can kind of like contextualize actually this isn't something that's unique to where I am this is something global and I think that seeing each other and I think that obviously in in recent light of the um the uh, SARS movement in Nigeria Mm. people are kind of seeing like okay like not all skin folk are kin folk and actually some people who are oppressed by people that look just like us you know um I think yeah I think it's just important but it but again it's also uh, because of the residue of colonial rule in Nigeria that this thing even exists. I think that, uh, yeah, I just think it's really important to just, you know, read and watch documentaries if you're not so much into the reading or like just really learn um, and take time to understand and empathise with people's people's stories outside of the US. And I don't mean that in a shady way or anything like that, but I feel like mm. a lot of things to do about black oppression is centered in the US. Right. And I think that although it's extremely important because, oh my goodness, I love black people in every part of the diaspora and all of our stories are important, but I feel like it's always centered through the funnel of um, uh, Americanness. And I feel like it needs to be something that is, I don't know, we just need to have more of a, a open understanding of what blackness is throughout right. the world you know mm-hmm. um because I even have to explain to some people sometimes that I'm a descendant of slavery I suppose that you've had to explain about your ancestors being um slaves in, or, or um in Ethiopia you said right mm-hmm. and I think that me having to even explain that as a Caribbean when Jamaicans <laughs> like historically had some of the most horrific I mean you know the most rebellious slaves were sent to Mm. so it's just interesting that I even have to explain that or tell someone that because I think how do you think black people got to Jamaica in the first place so so much there's there's so there's so much um holes I think in information that I think that would it would be very beneficial to us all if we all understood that you know I, I think it would I think it would kind of it would kind of um, dampen the diaspora wars if we understood each other's story more, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and we could see some of the common techniques used by, yeah. you know, 
racist right. capitalist systems that extract, you know, everything from our bodies. So, um, yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with you. And I think that this is probably why I so desperately want to be doing this work in media, because I oftentimes find that the people that I'm uh, gravitating to are from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that there there's an audience that really is hungry to hear about their very unique perspective. Um, I can't believe that we're already at the last question. Um, uh, thank you again for, for doing the podcast. It's been so nice speaking with you and, and hearing your perspective. Um, so the question that we always end on is what is a lesson, um, or an idea that you just held as something that was so true for your life? And as you grew and evolved, you, you, had to kind of unlearn that lesson that you thought that was, you know, just so true at some point. Oh, something I had to unlearn. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I think there's so much to, un- there's so much that I've had to unlearn and it's all been to do with um, black identity and mm. who I am, who I am, who I've been told that I am versus who I actually am. Um, mm. But I think something that stood with me that I've learned recently is um, lessons repeat themselves as required. Mm. (laughs) And um, Jamaicans would say, if you don't hear, you must feel. And I think Mm. that um, I'm trying as I'm getting older and wiser to not have to repeat lessons because a lot of the lessons I learn, I feel like I've learned that before or I knew that before you know Mm. um but yeah unlearning gosh there's always so much unlearning to do and always kind of having to check in with myself and check in with where that thought came from or where that bias came from or you know and that's the thing about you know colonial rule and all of these kind of like the the remnants of it in our family is that is is it kind of like it catches you at an early age because it's everything that you learn in your childhood and obviously those you know there's those kind of things become your pillars of what you think you know right you uh when you kind of tear down the pillars everything else comes crumbling down underneath it so um for me that's Mm. been religion that's been beauty that's been colorism that's been um fat phobia and that's been so many different things Mm. i'm still unlearning daily so um yeah it's a process it's a journey not destination so constant checking with myself um and yeah oh, that's beautiful thank you so much for being a part of our podcast um yeah i i you know as a black woman that is um running her own media company i'm always so 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 honored when people share their valuable time with me and 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 help to kind of um water a a dream and and a vision that I have for my life. So I appreciate you so much. I learned so much from our conversation. Um, Thank you so much for having me.